In celebration of opening day, we've got a special episode of The Moth Podcast for you. The theme is baseball and the surprising ways it connects people. I gaze out at the players on the field and then I, uh, I look over at my dad and I, I realize that in the silence between us that something has changed. It's like I'm seeing him for the first time. Two stories about baseball, family, and so much more. The episode's available right now. Subscribe to The Moth Podcast to make sure you hear it. World, which is you order the book now, you tell people that for Christmas, for the holiday season that you've ordered it, and when they get it, it's like, oh, I found a $20 bill in the jeans I just washed. Like, <laughs> there what? you go. You said it, Rob. That's it. You're right. I mean, it's the best. It's a great book. I know it's a great book, Andy. It's a great book. Well, was, was it fun to do? Was it? You've done some. Like, was it fun to do? Yeah, it was really fun to do because it's like digging into, you know, we cover these organizations and digging into how an organization is run. That was kind of my project. The reason I chose the Yankees, not just because I happen to work in this market and have the sourcing, but they've had so much continuity. Like Brian Cashman, when he was an intern in the 80s, he would get the scouting reports by listening to uh, answering machine messages every morning. All right, Andy Stankiewicz went three for four tonight for Columbus and uh, with a walk and, uh, and uh, batting second was Kevin Moss and, and write them all down and bring them to Billy Martin. So like from there to now, I thought the story of the Yankees continuity was kind of the story of how front offices have evolved. So that was really fun to do. And I'll tell you what, for, uh, for your listeners in your market, I would say some of the most fun I had was reporting on the 0304 Yankees Red Sox stuff and just what an era that was and how the Yankees really still feel, really feel that Dave Roberts stealing that base changed everything that had been that had been established for a century. And they still look at that as like a title change that went on and the where things shifted and would never return. And and they still look back at that moment with great uh, regret. That's wild. That's yeah. wild. But, you know, in fairness, it was you're talking about half a foot that changes the, the world for everybody, really. Mm-hmm. And so I guess one of the questions I have is, and I want to get into the here and the now, and I guess this is sort of the here and the now, did it, going through that process, did it make you view this front office, what's going on now, any differently? Because, you know, you've covered the team for a long time, but when you do something like in-depth as this, mm-hmm. it might make you look at it a little bit different. Yeah, that's a good question. I I, I would say um, Cashman is pretty widely respected among his, coll- his competitors, uh, and that I knew that, but that was reiterated. Uh, like Billy Bean and Brian Sabian, two people who come from very different uh, philosophies, both said that, Oh, this guy is one of the great GMs of all time. Uh, and so I was a little, I wouldn't say surprised, but struck by how strongly some of his colleagues and competitors endorsed him. Uh, but it did probably surprise me a little bit how much trouble they had uh, communicating the analytics mm-hmm. to players. And I'm sure this is common through the game to a certain extent over the years, and they're smoothing it out now. But when they had all the tech and all the numbers over the last half decade or so, or a little bit more when it really accelerated in the StatCast era and how they uh, maybe had a harder time than a team like the Astros or the Dodgers and getting that information from the front office to the clubhouse and onto the field. Um, that's been a challenge for them. So digging into that was, was interesting too. So that leads me to actually something else that was top of mind for me when, when Cashman has his, his, his little thing at the GM yeah. meetings, right? 
Um, well, a little, little thing. I, you know, I liked it, Andy, because it was, you know, being, you know, you're the GMs. I mean, it's it's become this faceless, nameless, you know, just say enough to not say anything. And, and oh, my goodness, Brian Cashman's, like, venting and going off over here. Right. But, and it was about exactly what you were talking about. So when you heard that, what was your – and knowing Cashman like you know him, and now you know him even better – what was your reaction to that? What was it? What was what was top of mind for you? Top of mind was that I'm not surprised at all because this is stuff that he's been passionate about for a long time. And to be clear, uh, I think he made a he had a, a fair point about how the Yankees have been over criticized for being quote unquote too analytical. That's like a boogeyman that happens in this business, and they actually uh, make more use of their pros scouts than most organizations that I know of. Certainly the other one I cover deeply is the Mets and the Yankees are way more involved with their scouts and have way more robust scouting uh, than the, than the, than the, uh, the Yankees do than the Mets do. Um, uh, So Cashman gets defensive and I think justifiably so when he is being told that all he does is rely on analytics and then they don't have the scouting and he also gets defensive, and, and this I wasn't surprised to hear because I've heard it in interviews for this book and privately, uh, is that he really doesn't like it when people criticize his people. Uh, he's a very loyal guy. And I know like I was at the bar at the GM meetings later that night with some of his employees who really appreciated it. And I think that was part of the point, too. Uh, so I wasn't surprised at all to see him do that. Uh, I was we we are in this for the entertainment value, I guess, and for stories. And it was a tremendous story as everyone else is talking about probabilities and being very, very boring and their Brooks Brothers shirts and the same haircut. And there's Brian Cashman being wildly like outside the lines. Right. So, yeah, but that, that's, it was that's what I'm talking about, though. That's what I'm talking about. It's it's yeah, there's there. I, I don't I don't want to say there needs to be more of that, but it's, I will say it. Yeah, well, there needs to be, yes, definitely for our purposes, there needs to be more of it. But this robotic and and being in that setting, all very seemingly nice people, but has gotten so extreme where not saying anything and petrified of saying something, petrified of showing personality. And I can, you know, I love this book. I love, I can't wait for this book because this is one of the guys who's still standing who isn't afraid to show the personality that we're talking about, right? Totally. And I think it's important to remember that we're talking about baseball here. That was one of my thoughts that day as I stood next to him for 67 minutes and listened to this. I remember that was the amount on my on my Otter app. Uh, it took 67 minutes of talking, more than 10,000 words. And I was thinking, this is how baseball should be talked about. Look at the Otani sweepstakes. Not to dive too deep into that. It's an yeah. old, tired topic. But, like, is, there was one other GM that wisecracked. It's like they're planning to invade a country, not sign a player. I mean, the level of secrecy. And uh, what's the matter with some F-bombs and some passion when you're talking about baseball? Mm-hmm. This is what I would imagine covering in GM meetings in the 70s or 80s would have been like, right? <laughs> Just like, yeah, well, why not? You know, I'd like to... To, to to speak like that and to say what he felt, it was very authentic. And auth- authenticity is great, too. And Cashman will button it up. He'll be very intentionally boring sometimes. He will filibuster and monotone you to death as a way to uh, obfuscate. Uh, he, he's, he's certainly not uh, above that a lot of times. Uh, but he was willing to show that because he feels that the Yankees have been unfairly maligned. And in this market, Rob, I can tell you, uh, New York Talk Radio, 
the fans that tweet, that that kind of stuff is really like the analytics thing is stuck to the Yankees in a really bizarre way, considering how pervasive it is in the industry. And again, how the Mets are more all in on that than the Yankees in a lot of ways, too. So I understand why he was 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 mad about that. And I totally agree that uh, it's, it was refreshing because of the way the rest of these guys talk. Not that they shouldn't take their job seriously or handle their um, public press responsibilities like like adults, but every once in a while, like somebody having an outburst, I mean, what the hell is baseball, right? But you know, I mean, this is what we're talking, we're just talking about this, this out of the way path that these guys are taking to mm. speak in a way that no human being would ever speak. <laughs> like it, it's, that's all, I guess that's the best way I could sum it up. That's true. Yeah. So I think sometimes you, you get this trend where there are ex players right now, like a Chris Young, who are in the job. And I think that's good that you have people with more playing backgrounds and, and, and in Boston, obviously there's Craig Breslow, but sometimes it's the ex player GMs and I won't name any names, but that are almost bending over backwards more than anyone to yeah. sound so corporate. So that's kind of interesting too, but I do like the trend of um, people with the field experience getting back into these roles a little bit. I think that could be a positive for the, the discourse overall. Yeah, I, I do too. And there's there's already some great examples. Um, you know, this I love this example of of D- Dayton Moore came on the podcast and he gave the example where Chris Young got everyone in a room said, "Can we win the World Series?" Yeah, and and they said, "Yes." Yeah. Like, okay, well, we're gonna have to trade these guys. Like, that's what you want to hear, right? Like, yep. that's and and I and unfortunately, and you talk about not naming names, but like. Because there's multiple G- current GMs who would never do that. They would never. He, they would say no. Like if there's any doubt at all, we're hanging on to these guys because it's cost earning. Anyway, mm-hmm. so when you get to the end of the this season or the 2023 season with the Yankees, there's so many things bubbling up, and and I, I'm going to look at it from also a reporter's perspective and someone who's writing this book. There's so many things bubbling up, including like the people are saying, oh, they need to turn this over. They need to, it got so bad where despite all the success, they need to turn this over. Cashman and Boone and everything yeah. else. What was your perspective as you were be, as they were going through September when that narrative was, I don't want to say it was prevalent, but it was there. Sure. What was your yeah. perspective? My perspective was that no responsible business would change management after uh, 30 consecutive winning years <laughs> in the case of baseball seasons. Uh, I don't think that the Yankees are anywhere close to being objectively at a place where they need to blow everything up um, because they've had this group just has such a track record. And I take seriously what, as I said, what competitors say about them. Uh, I, I am wary of being too much the defender of the front office and the market that I cover here. But I have to say, just objectively speaking, it was bizarre to me uh, and seemed very, very impulsive and in the moment to be calling for firing people that, uh, after all, um, have been highly successful. I think that the Yankee fan would be uh, would be pretty shocked to find what it's like to be a team that only has a winning record some years. Right. Yeah. And that, that right now they literally 31 consecutive seasons. I understand that the previous owner uh, and Derek Jeter set an unhealthy, unrealistic standard with the rhetoric about winning a championship or the seasons of failure. But that's obviously not how it works. And um, the Yankees have have good process. And in terms of Boone, 
he had his best year because of what he was dealing with and the adversity and uh, the injuries and judge and everything that was going on around that team. And it really looked in August like it, it was cratering and they mm-hmm. were going to really, really, really finish badly. And I think you can make the argument that um, Boone's management of the team saved some jobs and maybe some really important jobs because he kept that thing on track. Uh, he's really improved as an in-game manager. Remember when Alex Cora kind of ran circles around him in the 18 division series. Uh, at that point, Boone was very much learning, leaving pitchers in too long and whatnot. And and now he's got really good command in-game and really good command of the room. And uh, as long as Cashman has this job, he would want Boone to be in that job because I, I'm sure he appreciates this guy really kind of saved our asses here by by keeping us in. And they won 82 games when yeah. it didn't. That's not an accomplishment uh, for the Yankees, and it shouldn't be overly praised, but it looked like it was going to be a lot worse. I think the manager gets a lot of credit for that. No, absolutely. And, and there's two things. Number one, walking into that clubhouse at the end of the season, you're like, this isn't a very talented team yet. They played well. Like, they played yeah. well at the end. And so, and that was boom, to your point. Yeah. And also with Cashman, it's course correction, right? So, one of the things I don't think can get lost is, and we're going to talk about how they've approached this offseason, but the ability to approach this offseason somewhat in the way they have is because they actually have the assets to do it. So, mm-hmm. so in other words, they can keep trading these minor league pitchers. You know why? Because they have the minor league pitchers to trade. And mm-hmm. not every organization, and I'll say the Red Sox are a perfect example of this, that you don't have that to trade. You cannot – You can, even if they wanted to trade for Juan Soto, they aren't competitive with the Yankees in that respect. And that's a credit to Brian Cashman, I think, for continuing to do that and also now be willing to say, hey, you know what? We need to push aside apathy, and the way we're going to do it is we want to make sure everyone understands the pinstripes are the mecca of baseball, and we're going to remind everyone this with this, another shock and awe off season. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I agree. They put themselves in that position. And that comes back to the scouting piece too, Rob. The the they they trade a lot of minor league players and they're very very rarely burned on this. They have not, to be clear, their major league acquisitions have been uh not a good track record over the last 2-3 years. I not wouldn't defend that, but they haven't really lost, moved anybody uh, other than Ezekiel Duran to Texas in the Joey Gallo deal. That was one that they feel they missed on. But generally speaking, they have an assessment of their own system that's that's pretty spot on. And the way that they do that is by getting their top evaluators on their own minor league games every single day. They have a guy, Tim Nearing, obviously a familiar name in Boston, is Cashman says he's my Gene Michael. I mean, he's that, that super scout type. And I've watched enough baseball with Tim Nearing to see like, wow, he sees that, that. And he really is good like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he spends a lot of his time at their own double A, single A and triple uh, A games. And so they know, okay, these are the players we're talking about that the Padres want. Um, what do you think? And, and, and Nering and Matt Daly, their scouting director, and a few of their other top guys can say very honestly, like, what they think of these players. Not, not, not enough teams scout their own system that third. No, no. Sure it's, why. And you know what, Andy? I think this is such an important aspect of any organization of, number one, knowing the players that you're trading, and number two, hyping them up just enough. Yeah. You know, like I'll go way back. John Sherholz was the master of this. Like the of of uh, there was a guy named Andy Marte who was the number oh, one yeah. 
guy in all of baseball, R.I.P. Andy Marte. Yeah. And and he was number one all in baseball. They knew he couldn't play. They knew he couldn't play. And they, you know, they traded him. I think it was for Edgar Renteria. And but there was plenty of examples. And I think the Yankees have been really, really good. And that's such an underrated part of this equation, I think. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about you, you talked briefly about sort of that 2004 with Red Sox. I want to talk a little bit about rivalries and and how things have changed. So obviously, the American League East, the the Yankees are are putting their flag in the ground when it comes to we are going to be able to compete with the Orioles, with the Blue Jays, with the Rays, and but the rivalry is now as we sit here, it is a fascinating dynamic with the Yamamoto thing with the Mets. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the perceived, as I wrote, the the archaic bumper sticker rivalry of the Red Sox, oh, uh, yeah, we're going to trade for Alex Verdugo? Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's yeah, the right. Thing. When I it surfaced something about the Red Sox interesting Glaber Torres, somebody wrote, oh, no, they would never do you do it. Of course they would. And the Verdugo thing is a perfect example of this. That's out the window. But now – Forget about the so what I'm saying is forget about the Red Sox Yankees rivalry. Let's focus on this this Yamamoto Yankees versus Mets thing, which you have been ahead of the curve on at every step. Talk to me about the, being in the belly of the beast. Talk to me about this. Well, this is interesting. You know, I'm going to wind back and compare it to Yankees Red Sox in its prime because one of the things Gene Afterman, who's a longtime assistant GM for uh, for Cashman, was telling me in a way she kind of misses. The, the hatred between the Yankees and Red Sox back in the early 2000s. It really was that. Front offices didn't like each other. Players didn't like each other. Uh, it was really intense. And, like, you couldn't you, – you there was real a real antipathy there that mirrored how the fan bases felt about each other and real air of menace in the stadiums. Not always a good thing. Even if you look at – I watched the video of the A-Rod, famous, obviously, A-Rod Veritek thing, and Tanyan Sturtz is getting beat up by the – by the um, uh, on deck circle like a street brawl. It's like his head's bleeding. I mean, it's like yeah. it's like something from nineteenth century baseball, right? Yeah. But anyway, so that's how it was. <laughs> Obviously, as you said, Rob, it's not like that with the Yankees and Red Sox. Not all the managers are practically besties, too. Oh which yeah, anything. Um, <laughs> just a coincidence, but still, like those guys love each other. Uh, Yankees Mets is not a bitter rivalry because uh, Steve Cohen and Hal Steinbrenner have. Uh, collegial uh, relationship. Uh, the Yankees voted, were one of the teams that voted for Cohen's approval when there was real doubt over whether Cohen would be approved. Uh, so it's not personal, uh, and, but they haven't gone to battle over a player yet. And that can naturally create competitive feelings. Just like, you know, if you and I were going toe to toe on a story, we'd probably yeah. hate each other for a couple of days, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, it's just the psychology of it. So the Yankees and Mets are in uncharted territory now. Uh, and again, it's not like they're cursing each other and accusing each other of being acting in bad faith or anything, but they are in a financial competition, which is fascinating. Obviously, the Yankees in this market have always been the big brothers, remain the big brothers until uh, until the Mets accomplish something. Uh, but financially, that, the Steinbrenner family is not worth anywhere close to what Steve Cohen is worth. So that is a interesting dynamic that puts the Yankees back on their heels a little bit. And we get to an interesting place where we say, like, I'll tell you something I heard today, Sunday, Rob, was yeah. the Red Sox and the Mets might be expected to make higher offers to Yamamoto than the Yankees. 
but the Yankees feel pretty good about getting him. And when did the when were the Yankees the team that like we'll get him, but we're not going to be the high bidder? Like yeah. that's kind of where where it is now, which is so different. Uh, but that's how it's shifted. And uh, this is going to take on a new. This story is going to really grow into a new thing over the next couple of days as the Yamamoto sweepstakes mm-hmm. uh, reaches its conclusion and who gets him. And it's either going to be a moment where Cohen was able to really sweep in and out-muscle the Yankees on money or loses because the Mets are still the little brother in Queens. It's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. I think this is awesome. And and be, before I ask, we, we break down the recruiting pitches of each, which are equally as fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, well, has there been... You mentioned the financial might of these two teams, which congratulations, Yamamoto. Congratulations, right. any player. Holy mackerel. You get I mean, this is like the the sweet spot of of leverage, you know, the Dodgers, the Phillies, the Mets, right. the Red Sox, the Yankees. Has there been a player that the Yankees and Mets have both vied for financially? You know, it's it's funny that you asked that because we're framing this as Cohen versus Hell Steinbrenner, but I've been talking to People like Jim Duquette, who uh, is a colleague of mine, SMI, or used to be the Mets GM. Mm. Steve Phillips, another ex-Mets GM. These guys cannot remember going back a couple of decades when this would, if this has ever happened. Certainly not to a player like Yamamoto, but even on much smaller players, it hardly ever happens because the Yankees and the Mets, as like Jim and Steve and these guys have explained to me, the Mets always felt like, why would we get into competition for the Yankees? It's going to hurt both of us. We're going to we're going to outbid each other and Someone's going to get a bad deal, and let's just not even go there. And it's not been that common that the two teams have been in the same place at the same time. Uh, the Mets haven't been in full-on acquisitive, uh, like a- acquisitional mode uh, all that often until the last couple of years. Every once in a while, they go big. Carlos Beltran could be one example, but it wasn't really a bidding war. In t- late 2005, late 2004, Beltran uh, had a deal with the Mets, and then Scott Boris went to the Yankees and said he'd like to be a Yankee for less. The Yankees said no. Uh, so that's sort of an example, but not really. They The Yankees weren't really after Beltran at that time. So no, there's not really a precedent for this, which is why it's such an interesting and fun New York baseball story happening right now. So then you have the recruiting of of him. And and the, the there's a couple – it's, it's rare we, where we have these – specific examples that come out really beforehand. A lot of times we get the stories, this is what happened, and they secretly did this. Well, we know this, and thanks to your great reporting. So we know that Steve Cohen went to Japan, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, did that whole thing, which, holy mackerel, every team fan base should hope their owner cares enough to fly to Japan to recruit somebody. So he does that, and then obviously – as you said on Sunday, the you know they have the they have a dinner at Cohen's house, which fascinates me. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. the the whole scene there. Um, and then you have the Yankees, where the image that we had, and I'm sure there's more. The image we have is Brian Cashman giving the standing o- ovation behind home plate for the uh, for the Yamamoto no hitter, which holy, which. Good for Brian Cashman. Talk about product placement. Right. Holy mackerel. And then then they say, and you, maybe you can light us more on this. Then they, uh, then they, oh, Yamamoto's in New York at Cohen's house. We're going to meet with him too. Um, so I don't know. Which, which of these things is the most important thing? Boy, 
That's a great question. Ask me on Friday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, but I think I'll, I'll, I can answer that a little bit. I will say that despite the perception or Vegas odds or Mets fans hopes, the Mets really weren't in this much. Uh, for a long time. It's just kind of, an, you know how we do our reporting, You're having a million conversations and the Mets just were not on the tip of people's tongue with Yamamoto uh, for months, even though they wanted him. It didn't help that the guy they sent there was Billy Epler, who's no longer with the organization. Mm-hmm. It's a stroke of bad luck. Whereas your Jed Hoyers and your Brian Cashman's and your Andrew Friedman's were there. I don't know if that's affects the Red Sox in the same way. It'd be a, a, a question, I suppose, just mm-hmm. that, that turnover at a bad time. Uh, I, I'm sure that can be overcome. But in the Mets case, that was part of what put them behind. I also heard reliably that Yamamoto was a guy who liked the big spotlight, liked the iconic franchises. And you say what you want about the Mets. There's a lot about them that is storied and interesting. But they're not iconic like these flagship teams, the Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers. Uh, and they were at a disadvantage from that. So it's a long way to answer your question of what's most important. So when Steve Cohen and David Stearns went to Japan, I guess almost three weeks ago now, uh, that was the moment where sources were starting to take the Mets seriously in this. So I think that had a real impact. Uh, it was important, that gesture. And that gave the Mets a, a seat at the table, which is what they still have. Even the meeting at Cohen's house, so it was Steve and Alex Cohen, uh, husband and wife and co-owners of the team. Uh, and then it was Carlos Mendoza, the manager, and Jeremy Hefner, the pitching coach, along with Stearns. So... The Yankees brought their manager and pitching coach to meet with Yamamoto in L.A. last week. So all the Mets are really doing there was pulling even in terms of who they met. And until that dinner, it wasn't a great look that Yamamoto hadn't asked to meet the manager and pitching coach. So now, OK, all right, they've done that. So now they're even. The Yankees convened what I will tell you was a fairly hastily organized next meeting, uh, possibly in reaction to the Mets because they were scrambling Uh I probably can't get into too many details without revealing sources, but people who weren't expecting a meeting to happen like now or whenever it's it's happening soon, uh, we're like, oh, oh shoot, we got to get to that meeting. So Look at that. I, I, the image of that is awesome. It's it's it's. By the way, we're sending a car outside of Cohen's house. Yeah, right. It was so something like. Said, that. Hey, by the way, you're gonna have to follow us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that shows you the intensity of the competition because. They're guessing on where the other. They're all guessing where the other team stands. Obviously, Yamamoto's side is not giving any indication. They'd be stupid too. Uh, Joel Wolf, his agent, is one of the best, and he's not going to do that. The Mets weren't even told at this dinner that the Yankees would be meeting with them again. Uh, that's okay. That's not the players or the agent's obligation to say, but they're just guessing about what's happening with each other. So I'm not saying that the Yankees scheduled this meeting uh, as a reaction to the Mets meeting, but. I will say that it was scheduled as I, the word I used was hastily. I'll stick with that. I love it. I love, I love, I love, that makes it even better. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned that Yamamoto likes sort of to, uh, likes to be part of the, 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 the bright lights, the spotlight and everything else like that. Um, and there's different ways to look at all these big markets, but the Dodgers dynamic it be, has obviously become uh, an interesting one. So from what you know, how important is it? It's like the power ranking of importance, right? It's it's money, which he's going to – I don't know if you know this. He's going to get some money. He's going to get years. He's going to get money. Um, you know, if if this narrative of, well, is it important to play with Otani or does he want to be the guy? Like that was, that's was that been a thing with the Japanese players too and yeah. conflicting things. Like even in Boston, you have Yoshida who played with them. Well, does that mean anything? 
but you but you've done enough reporting on this to probably have a pretty good sense of what's important to Yamamoto. Yeah. Does the Otani thing affect anything? Is the Dodgers potentially a good fit in that respect? Or is it a big enough market? Or is he still got his, in your sense, the lure and the bright lights of New York City is so awesome. The potential of that is so awesome. Then that's going to trump all. You know, I think that uh, it's important to note that in this free agency is one that pretty uniquely we're hearing those of us reporting on it are hearing wildly different things. I could tell you, source told me that he won't play with Otani. Source told me that the Dodgers are getting it. Like, it's one of those stories where I got to be real careful about saying anything definitive because sure. people in good faith are saying very different things. There's a lot of guessing going on here. Uh, but I will say, Rob, that uh, it didn't seem like the Dodgers, after getting Otani, were being taken super seriously in the Yamamoto sweepstakes, generally in the industry. Uh, and then... When they start when they start talking about glass now, I was like, they're definitely not on Otani or on Yamamoto, excuse me. And everything changed when Otani went to that meeting for Yamamoto last week because that is a big gesture. The way not to generalize about an entire country's culture, but the way this yeah. has been explained to me is that uh, the aversion that some Japanese stars have to come to a team where there already is a Japanese star has everything to do with kind of not feeling necessarily welcomed or feeling like the, the little guy, the little brother type. So the star reaching out and rolling out the red carpet means everything. And like the Mets had Kodai Senga do that at the beginning of the offseason. And Senga paved the way. Hey, come here. It's cool. I want you here. You're welcome. And that helped a lot. So Senga's a nice player. When Shohei Otani does that, some people that know Yamamoto might think that's going to be pretty hard for him to say no to now. Uh, because Otani's gone to that extent. So that's speculation, but informed speculation in that. I've also heard that Yoshida is a positive for him because mm -hmm. they're, they're friends. Uh, and that that that's something that would not in any way deter him and, and might attract him. So uh, those are some of the bits and pieces I have in that question. Yeah, no, no, it's it's all it's all relevant and it's all I think insightful. And you know, the one team that's supposedly in the mix, it feels like they're just that we haven't mentioned is the Giants, right? I mean, right. It, it's it's right. Yeah, everyone's putting their best foot forward, and the Giants' calling card is, "Hey, look, nobody hits home runs here, so don't worry about hitting, giving up home runs." Um, and it, it's it's so impossible. There's so many. As even as we're talking, there's so many things, yeah. and I guess it's it's the Otani stuff, but with a little bit more information. Um, I yes. don't know. I mean, no, that's a good analogy. Because uh, the players' representatives, in this case at Wasserman, Yamamoto's, are being appropriately close to the vest, um, but they're not, <laughs> the people involved are not treating it like national security, thank God. Yeah. I mean, that just the, the Otani thing, just it crossed over into absurdity with the secrecy. You know, as well as I do or better, Rob, the people in this business sometimes use, think of information as power. And withholding information is like an unnecessary, like I have information and no one can have it. And uh, that's not what the Yamamoto thing is a little more normal that way. Although it's not easy to get information. Uh, I could, Wasserman's not telling clubs and Joe, Wal Joe Wolf is not telling clubs. If you leak, you're in trouble. It's something like that. Right. Like it was with Otani. Well, think about this is that the image of Yamamoto at the Lakers game on the, you know, on the sidelines. Yeah. What if Otani was at the on the sideline with a Bulls game? Everyone would be like losing right. their mind. I mean, look, the, the obvious one is Dave Roberts. Like, there's no manager at the winter meetings that hesitated for a second to say, 
hey, you know what? Yeah, of course we would like Yamamoto. None. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the contracts, ultimately the contract, because the Yamamoto thing keeps creeping up. And it was at the beginning of last year, maybe they're like 200 million. Now it's 300 million. And this is the last thing I got for you, Andy, but is do you think that the uniqueness when we see the Yamamoto contract, is it going to be perceived? I'm not going to say more unique than Otani because I don't know if we'll ever have anything, but along those lines, because it's going to land at a, at a place where we just never, because now we're hearing 13 years, 14 years, whatever it is. What's your sense of how big this is going to be? Because like we said, all, all the team, the, the uniqueness of the teams vying for him. Good question. I think it's probably going to be more straightforward than the Otani deal, just a lot of money. And that's going to be probably the shock value and length and money. However, they want to space out. I've heard more about more speculation on dollars and years, but I think salary wise, contract wise, he's going to get something like Garrett Cole money. Uh, whether it's a little more, a little less, depends on the team. That's $324 million um, for a guy that's never thrown a pitch in MLB. So that's a lot more shocking than Garrett Cole getting it uh, coming off his, yeah. what had already been a great career with the Astros and Pirates. Uh, and, for a team like the Mets or the Red Sox or the Phillies or the Giants to get him, I guess what I'm saying is the Yankees and the Dodgers are probably in a good spot with him, like, feel-wise. So for these other teams to get him, they might really have to go, like, oh, my God, did the Red Sox really just bid? I'm just going to make up a number here, 330. So, you know, yeah. I'm not saying that's what the Red Sox are offering, but it could be a, a shocking number like that. And remember, plus, that is not including the posting fee. Which is another what thirty forty million right. I guess, or something like that. So it is uh, the money's going to a place where, and you've got some teams kind of going. They understand it's irrational. That's what free agency is, especially when there's this kind of competition. And there's just some chuckling, like, "Well, I hope he's a good pitcher because <laughs> someone's going to really make a big bet." And you know, there's factors. He's pitching every, uh, getting used to routines. Oh. Of, are you going to pitch every five days or six? The ball's slightly different. Uh, the routine, all those things that make you know, some guys like Kodai Sanga make the trans transition really well. And, and some guys don't. We had, know, what's we had, the, yeah. I was going to ask you in, in Boston, like it was the perception that Dice K ultimately. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Mind meld there because yeah. think about that. It was the hundred million dollar man. Holy mackerel. And, and if you look at it relatively the same age, I mean, not that far yeah. off. And, yeah. and, you know, so you had the, about I think it was about sixty million dollar posting fee, hundred million dollar contract, but it was to go where it is now, and it's I mean we're talking about uh, seventeen years later, yeah. And but the perception was this: it was the same sort of feel, and I think it hasn't probably been compared enough, Andy. Yeah, is that it was the same sort of feel? I don't think we'll ever see anything like the Dice K Mania because there simply weren't as many Japanese like stars that have have come over. And this guy was the unicorn, perceived as a unicorn. He has this pitch that nobody's seen. It was and these six pitches and and all of it. But it was the same hype. It was the same yeah. thing and in the same age. So. Yeah. Yeah, and he had but, a nice little career, but it certainly no match the expectation. No, I mean, like what what he was is had a ERA just over four, was okay, but was uncomfortable to watch because it took him so long to pitch. Yeah, and you know they won the World Series. The next year he goes eighteen, he gets eighteen wins, ERA under three, 
um, fourth in the Cy Young voting, and then the next year comes back after spending all the spring training almost with the WBC throwing like 80 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And it just was downhill from there. So my point is, you're right. I mean, the one thing that we haven't factored in is that there is a precedent that this not potentially working out. Right. But, you know, but then again, crazy. it gets crazy. People want to think that their front offices of their favorite teams have this impeccable process. But sometimes it's like, I don't know, get the player. They want them. We want them. Just do it. And then, you know, hope it works out. And I think there's a little bit of that going on. Yeah. I mean, it's the cost of doing business now, right? It's like why Xander Bogart's get 11 year deals. The cost yeah, of doing here's a good example. Yeah. Uh, all right. The Yankee way, uh, like I said, it's like finding a hundred dollar bill in your pocket. Come, yeah. It comes out in May, right? Correct. Yes, that's right. Late May. Comes out in May, but that shouldn't stop you from this is the best holiday Christmas gift you can possibly get. I'm gonna tell you right now. It's I am psyched. I'm not psyched. I was I was uh admittedly immersed in my own deal before this year. It's all about spreading the word for books that I'm I'm excited about, and this is the book I'm excited about. So well, I appreciate that very much, Rob. You you just earned yourself a free advanced copy and deep appreciation. Thank you. All right, thanks, Andy.